This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria interviews Danielle Aiken, the author of Sarah's Story, Life After IVF, a story of personal triumph and spiritual growth. Sarah's Story depicts one woman's journey before, during, and most importantly after infertility by sensitively giving a heartfelt account of the reality and the emotional roller coaster that is IVF. But it is much more than that. The story serves as a metaphor for anyone struggling to overcome adversity, as it shines a light of hope which leaves the reader feeling empowered by the ability we all possess to bring ourselves back from the depths of despair. Sarah's story will move you from tears of sorrow to tears of joy, as it provides a compelling insight into human potential and a person's capacity to turn their life around finding hope, meaning, and inspiration where none previously existed. As a highly experienced nurse and midwife, Danielle Aiken has spent over 20 years working at the cutting edge of IVF in Australia. Now a counselor and clinical hypnotherapist running a successful private practice, Danielle assists people to move through trauma and crisis by helping them to discover their inner strengths. When she's not writing, she is passionate about empowering people to achieve their goals and reach their true potential by working with the principles that are explored in the latter part of Sarah's story. Sarah's story is a work of fiction based on the cumulative common experiences of countless numbers of women and men that Danielle encountered over 20 years of working in the area of infertility. This story is an inspirational narrative about self-discovery and transformation. It is a powerful story of love, life, and resilience that leads the reader from the innocence of naivety through the emotional turmoil of unexpected despair and grief, then emerges out the other side as it skillfully illuminates human potential to triumph over adversity. After working in the infertility industry for over 20 years, Danielle experienced firsthand the devastation that infertility can wreak on individuals, couples, friends, and extended family alike. It can often be an insidious and unrelenting issue, and there are many relationships that do not survive the experience. Danielle has utilized the insight and knowledge that she has gained on her own journey and sensitively displayed this throughout the pages of Sarah's story. Danielle is blessed to be a mother of three beautiful children, Lachlan, Morgan, and Rachel, and a stepmother to Jack. 
grandmother to Imogen, Audrey, and Brooklyn, and she is currently excitedly awaiting the arrival of her fourth grandchild, and she never takes this privilege for granted. The purpose of writing this book was to shine a light of hope in the darkness that illuminates the possibility that sometimes amazing outcomes can be born out of the deepest despair, and each and every experience can provide us with valuable wisdom from which to create a new beginning. Danielle has just completed her second book, The Ripples, What Lies Beyond. Here is the interview with Danielle Aiken. In your own words, who is Danielle Aitken? That is an interesting question. I am an evolving soul, I believe, and I'm continuously changing. But I have thought about that a little bit of late because I think that, you know, we come into this world with a purpose and I believe mine is to help and to heal. I have the earliest memories of myself as a, a young I think four, maybe five-year-old child around uh, back in the day, we used to have bonfires. We don't do that anymore, but circling around the bonfire in my little nurse's uniform, even at that early stage to make sure that everyone was safe and everyone was okay. So I think I knew it then, but I certainly know it now. My life is very much gone in that helping and healing pathway. It, it continues to evolve, but it's always been the central theme. So I think I think uh, that is who I am. I'm a healer and I, and, I'm, and I want to help people. That sounds wonderful. Thank you. Before we talk about some of the topics in your book, Sarah's story, Life After IVF, a story of personal triumph and spiritual growth, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned off record. What is another word for life? Danielle? Experience, I think. It's, it's, life is what, what happens in moment to moment uh, as, we, as we go through our day. Um, it's, it's what happens in the present moment. I'm very much about the present moment. So that's where life occurs for me. Yeah. What is the meaning of freedom to you? Um, they're great questions. Freedom to me is to be able to do what I choose to do within the boundaries that that's possible. Um, freedom for me is all about the mind really, because I think no matter what our bodies are doing or what restrictions we have on us physically, our minds are free always to, to take us anywhere, to imagine anything, to experience and to feel. Um, very much so. So freedom, freedom for me is all about the mind. I love that. True. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And do you have a vision for a new reality? Yeah, I do in a way. I, I think the world's greatest need right now, this, this theme keeps coming to me and it's love. I think I think love is the essence of everything and I think it's at the core of everything all problems if we if we approach them from a loving perspective I think uh, that that's the healing essence I the word keeps coming to me at the moment in in so many ways I do lots of heart meditations 
Um, and I, you know, I, I work a lot with energy and I believe that, um, you know, the healing heart energy is the strongest energy. And I even, I, I have actually just published a second book. And in doing that, I created my own publishing firm, which I've actually called Project Heart Publishing because I, that that's where my writing comes from the heart. Um, and I just think, I just think love can heal so many things. Uh, there's so there's anxieties and there's so many traumas that I deal with in, in my working life. And um, I, I, you know, love of the self as well, very important. Um, but I think if we can, I think that that's what the world needs more of, definitely. Yeah, yeah, and I agree too. And that's um, my next question, leads to my next question, which is what is love to you? And what are the manifestations of love? To me, love is a healing energy. If if we if we think about, um, and again, I I have done a lot of work with energy. I did I do daily meditation, daily tai chi. My meditations are energy meditations, and on the energy spectrum, you know, we have the high the high frequency energies and the lower ones. So, you know, the anger and the fear are lower frequency, but love is one of the highest frequencies. And and that being that, I believe, is um, is where for me it, it is it, it just goes hand in hand with healing. If we can if we can um, come at things from a loving perspective, then we are more likely to be stepping into a healing. So true. So true. What is your understanding and idea of peace? Peace? Yeah. Peace. Again, I think peace is um, peace is something that uh, is achievable for each and every one of us, but it's not it's not an external thing. I believe it's an internal thing. It comes from within, and and um, I think that it's available to us in this moment, and and should we choose and, and I choose, I keep using the word choose because I believe we always have choices. We, we can choose one thing or we can choose something else. And the things that we choose make the difference in our, in our experiences. Um, but yes, I think that um, peace comes when we begin to understand that we do have a choice. That we can that we can take a breath and be present again a lot again I, I mentioned similar themes but being present in this moment very much about mindfulness um, and to be here and now is 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 what peace is about we and not not being in the future where that anxiety or that fear exists or may not exist but we believe it to be true whether it is or not just being here and now in the present that's that's where the peace exists. Yes, yeah. And that takes some um, practice, right, Danielle? <laughs> lots of practice. Oh. <laughs> absolutely. Absolute lots and lots and lots of practice. Yes. I even this I meditated before I um spoke today. I, I do it every day. Um and even in doing it every day, uh, the mind has a habit of still wandering. So, you know, we're uh, as I said, I'm evolving, but uh, we're all on our journeys and nobody's if we if we had mastered the, the mind, perhaps we wouldn't still be in this realm <laughs> true yeah. we wouldn't be That's here right. yeah. Yeah. what where and who is god to you uh 
Yeah, good questions. Um, what, where, and who is God? Well, for me, God is everywhere. God is all around me. God is, I sit here looking out my beautiful window. I live in the most gorgeous place. I'm seeing green. I'm seeing sky. I've got paddocks around me and animals flying, birds. That's, for me, God is the in the ocean, the whole creation of what is around me. Um, that's God where all around me. Um and again, there's this is this is interesting too because my as just zipping along to my second book that I've written, there's a real essence of God in that. Um, it's a it's a topic of teen suicide, but but it there's a um, a story beneath that about God, and I believe that God is to everybody something else. And and this is an interesting understanding that I, again I had at a very early age I don't know where it came from but I just sort of had an understanding that um, God to me was one thing God to somebody else was was something else but in fact the same thing so you know Buddha um, Jesus um, you know every everybody and everyone who worships their own God in their own way the universe for some people I believe um, it's I, I I think it's all one and the same thing. So we all we all worship in our own way, and that's a social and a cultural thing. It's how we've been brought up or what we've learned often. Um, but I believe the true essence of God isn't different. You know, uh, it's a it's a unification. I think I believe that we're all connected, so there is no separation. Even though we as human beings see separation. In reality, I think, you know, we are, we're all one. And and again, that's where the love comes into it. Love, I think, for me, is very much part of that um, that God essence, um, universal presence. Um, it's many things to many people. And, and nobody, I don't believe anybody's right and I don't believe anybody's wrong. I just think, you know, we're all doing it in our own way. Oh, wow. I love your answer. Yeah. I love your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. Do you see a difference between spirituality and religion? Again, I think um, only in a perception, only in people's perception. Spirituality is religion for some people, although the terms are different. And and I think the terms we use are very much, again, part of what we've grown and what we've known. Um, the prejudices that we faced along the way, you know, even when we don't think we're prejudiced, we, we can sometimes pick those up because this is what we've been taught. And perhaps this is the only way that we see is the way. And I know many people who think their way is the only way. And to me, that just seems ludicrous because, um, you know, if if that little Indian boy who was born and he's um, Hindu doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that he's not going to heaven if heaven's what you believe, you know. Um, so I think I think it's um, it's difficult. Well, it's interesting to to consider that your way is the only way. I think that's a very blinkered way of looking at things. I'm I am more universal, you know. Again, I think we're all. Um, we do what we've learned and we, we can all be open to many things. But I, again, I don't think there is a one and only way. Right, right. So my last warm-up question to you, what do you think is the purpose of life, the ultimate purpose of the human experience? Well, I think, I think it varies for every person or every soul here. I think that we are all here to 
experience something. My personal belief is that we have all had many lifetimes and and perhaps we choose what we come to experience in this one, what we come to learn, to um, give wisdom to our to our uh, eternal soul. So I, I think that um, we're all each on our individual journeys this time around <laughs> and that it is different for, for each of us. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. So let's talk about your work, you and your work. How did you become a writer, Danielle? Well, again, it's it's of my um, desire, I suppose, to want to help people. And um, my first book was born of working in IVF for 20 years as I'm a nurse and a midwife and I worked in IVF and I, I witnessed the struggles that people um, endured during that time, that journey, and often they were very common um, struggles. So many people were going through exactly the same experiences, but they were doing it alone. They didn't recognise or realise that other people were feeling exactly the same emotional responses as they were feeling, the same um, sense of loss, the same um, depressions and anxieties that they were feeling as well. Uh, Because people often don't talk about it, it's often something that... um, uh, people go through on their own, and and some people do um, experience that they they get the families involved for for a time, but if they experience many um, failures of cycles, then uh, sometimes they stop seeking that support because the support from families can then turn around to be pressure. So a lot of people do end up enduring um, the ups and downs of this really emotional journey on their own. And so many people that I saw would be would have been amazing parents. And and I suppose um, the book itself, so it is it is the theme is about infertility and and the first half of the story is about that. But the title, the the subtitle of it is Life After IVF. And I myself um, it's a little bit about me too, I suppose, the second part of the book. So the second part of the book is about what I now do. So in order to help myself um, deal with these people, I became a counsellor to give myself more skills. And then I started to really become fascinated with the power of the mind and what was possible when we choose our thoughts and what we can what we can achieve with mind-body potential. So I then became a clinical hypnotherapist. And really, that's where the second part of the book was born because I within that, I actually talk about potential and I talk about um, what's actually going on in the world of infertility and how um, when we do again gain control of the mind, um, take ourselves out of stress, we can turn around the um, we can turn around the body's responses. And in fact, mind-body practices have been seen in some studies to show um, there's a clinic in Boston, um, Dorma Centre, using mind-body 10-week programs. And it's been shown to turn around fertility success rates by up to 55%. So it just really clearly shows that our mind is so powerful and our bodies are amazing. I mean, uh, and this is the work I do now, our bodies turn on when we are perceiving ourselves to be in a stress and IVF or, or infertility is very stressful. Um, Fertility is one of the first things that actually turn off. And so I wanted to write a book to help people. I wanted to write a book to um, educate families that this is a common experience, that people go through these things, that, you know, their, their loved one isn't suddenly becoming this 
person they don't recognise uh, for no reason because that sometimes is the case. Relationships often don't survive. So I wrote it to um, to educate, to support and to validate people on that journey. But the second part of it I wrote to actually um, get some messages out there about what can be done and what people can do to help themselves along on this journey too. So it is actually quite an uplifting and inspirational book because it's, it is about transformation. It's about um, overcoming adversity and and it's about taking the wisdom from a painful experience and turning that into something precious and using that wisdom to move forward in life. So um, there's a lot there's a lot to it, and and it, as I said, it's been born of different things. And that whole life after IVF subtitle was a lot about me because I had a lot of learning to do myself after IVF, which created the second half of the book. Wow. You mentioned support. Is support so important in challenging crises, uh, challenging times in crisis? So I'm wondering if you have a new definition for support after your experience. Which experience? The, the book or, or the recent experience? <laughs> Being a nurse for so long, a midwife, and writing a book about those um, yeah, events. Yes, most definitely. Um, support, I think, is... I don't think that we are meant to walk this world alone, you know. I think that support is very important. I do see in my work that I do now a lot of people who feel they don't have that support and it can be quite damaging. A lot of people who've been traumatised, they turn, they turn, even though support may be right there, just, you know, waiting to to be invited in, sometimes, as we know, the barriers go up and people um, people choose to um, block themselves away a little bit in, in an attempt to protect themselves. So I think support is... Uh, it goes hand in hand with being a little bit vulnerable because I think in order to receive the support, we need to open up. We need to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. But in being vulnerable also, there is um, there is that additional concern for some people that they're going to be hurt further. So um, in the IVF setting, um, in order to protect themselves, people do sometimes shut themselves off and they and they do keep it secret and they don't talk about it because the additional um, pressure that is put on them by, you know, their perceived pressure that is by um, well-meaning people asking questions, a lot of questions, and it can just serve to... Uh, deepen their, their their sorrow, I suppose, if they haven't had the outcomes that they that they were desiring to have. It's a tough journey. It's a very tough journey. But yeah, I think um, if if we can allow ourselves to be vulnerable, if we can allow ourselves to be, and it's about being honest, isn't it? I think it's about being honest and being true to yourself. And um, and and I suppose even again for myself personally. Um, we're all on, we are all on a journey, and every every day is an experience. Every day gives us something to take away from if we're open to that. And I I now um, myself personally, I will talk in a completely different way, even in this interview, say things in this interview that I might not have said five or ten years ago because I might have thought, oh, who's listening to this? And what are they going to think if I say that? That's a bit out there. But I don't care now because I'm I own who I am and I believe I have a message. So um and and you know, people can take it as they take it. And I think when we can move into a space like that, it's it's um for ourselves personally, it's a healthy place to be. 
I love that. I absolutely love that. It's true. So true. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so I have a question about challenges. In the midst of challenges and crises, how can we open up and be able to see the opportunities for self-discovery and spiritual growth? I think that that comes very much from looking not at what we are being limited by, not at what we can't do, not at the physical pain or the physical trauma, but by looking at what we can do, what we do have, the positive side, you know. And um, my work that I do is is very solution-focused. My writing is solution-focused. And again, on my own journey, I, I encountered and I've written this as a little bit of a blurb in the back of the book, but I haven't got into too much detail. But, you know, I have had my own adversities. We all have. Um, and I, I, at one point, I was taking on a lot. Um, and because I'm a bit of a doer and doers take things on and on and on. And sometimes people, sometimes people who do get things dumped on them. Um, and, and I was taking on a lot. And anyway, I ended up with an um, autoimmune condition. And uh, which is uh, epidemic in the world we live now. Um, and so I had a um, experience which uh, was really challenging and very painful and I couldn't walk for a while. I had a wheelie walker I, and walking is what I do. I walk, that's my exercise. I love to walk in nature. So I was challenged very much and I could sometimes not even walk a couple of steps. So wheelchair, wheelie walker, crutches, the works. Um, and this went on for a long time and constant pain in my body. So this is where I very much got into meditation, even more so, I already was, but even more so, to heal my body. But what I did... Um, I spent a lot of time in bed and a lot of time just sitting. I could, I've got stairs in my house. I couldn't get up or down the stairs. So there was a lot of time I had to actually, I could have crashed and, and gone in a completely different direction, felt very sorry for myself. But instead, um, I chose to think about, okay, I can't, this is something I can't do anything about in this moment. What can I do? And I knew my body, I couldn't, like I couldn't even write my hands. All my joints were affected um, but I knew what I could do. I had fingers, I could tap, and I thought, I've got time. My mind is perfect. My body might not be, but my mind is. So that's when I actually chose to write my book. That's when I chose to write Sarah's story. So that book was born out of an opportunity of, um, you know, it could have, I, as I said, if I, I could still be sitting in that space if I hadn't chosen um, that it wasn't somewhere that I wanted to be and it wasn't somewhere that I wanted to stay. But why am I being given this experience here and now? It must be a reason. Okay, what's the reason? It's a reason because I'm meant to write this book. So it gave me that opportunity and I'm very grateful. It also gave me enormous insight into what it's like to live in a disabled world for a while. Um, enormous insight and enormous empathy. So, um, and that all of those experiences helped me in my further writing as well. So the writing for me is to... Um, to get messages about overcoming adversity and, over, and, and challenges like that to a greater audience. I, I sit with people one-on-one -on -one in my consulting room, um, but if I can write a book that can get to far, far more people, then um, hopefully I'm, my ability to help more people is, um, is in those writings, in those pages. You made me wonder what makes some people more resilient and inspired than others. Yeah, it, it's um, 
That's a good question. And again, it might come back to what our life purpose is in this, in this, on this journey. But I think you talked about support and I think support is something, even though my life wasn't perfect as a child, for sure. I had, we had challenges back then too. Um, but I also had enormous support. I had a loving family around me. Um, even though within that there was, there were challenges. Um, there were certain people that, that were there. There were certain people that were dependable and reliable and uplifting. And I, and I think I know now the people that I see again in my room that I work with who are um, struggling very, very often have had trauma in their early life. And, um, and that trauma in early early life continues through uh, unless unless people are um, have done work and have healed that because it it that's where our um, you know the part of the mind that subconscious mind very powerful part of our mind it uh, it it is those traumas are seeded in there and then the next time an experience happens. Um, the body gets really good repeating programs and um, learning certain responses and sometimes not sometimes they're dysfunctional responses. So if you've learned at an early age that um, you know there can be problems, but there's love and there's support around you that you can move through it, it can become I think it can become your way of life. If you've learned back then that um, you know there are traumas and life is terrible and people are out to get you and there's no reprieve from that or no support within that, then I think you grow to be a different person and perhaps less less resilient and more protective of yourself, more closed perhaps, and not wanting to be vulnerable because it's not safe to be vulnerable in that situation. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It makes so much sense, right? Um, There's a question I wanted to ask you before I ask you some technical questions about infertility. Why did you decide to become a nurse and midwife? Well, nursing, as I said, it was just it seemed to be something from when I was that young girl walking around the bonfire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, and I also, I had a very um, strong, uh, the matriarch of our family, my grandmother, very strong. And she had um, gone through a depression and a war and, you know, she was very pivotal in our lives. And um, my sister and I, interestingly, she, she uh, began life as a nurse in the war and then changed to become a chef. And so, um, interestingly, I became a nurse. My sister became a chef. She was, she was a powerhouse, this woman. Um, at, but she instilled in us, it was, I, I always remember this, she said it was all about security for her. I mean, it, it was the path I was heading on, I believe, but, um, but she wanted us to be secure because she'd gone through the depression and the war. And she said to me that, um, to my sister that, uh, and myself, people, my sister who's the chef, people will always need to eat and people will always get sick. So she saw that, that she was encouraging us to go into a, um, a, a profession where we would always have work. <laughs> so that's, that helped a bit. But, but it was yeah. also my need, this, this, this knowing that I just wanted to help people. And um, I still remember sitting at my first nursing interview, why do you want to be a nurse? And, and those words came out of my mouth, I want to help people. <laughs> Yeah, how wonderful. So, um, how beautiful. And babies, I love babies. And oh. mid, midwifery was just that next step. But, um, and I suppose what, how I moved from midwifery into the fertility and IVF sector is that I did have even then 
at a young age some challenges with my body. So again, rather than um, look at what I couldn't do and it was challenging delivering a baby, I had had a couple of operations on my shoulder. Um, I moved into what can I do so I could do um, fertility and work and, and use the skills I had as a nurse and midwife trying to help people get pregnant instead of delivering their babies. How wonderful. Let me ask you some technical questions about infertility. Um, what is infertility and what causes it? Oh, many causes. Um, stress. Stress is a major cause, actually, but there are many causes. And infertility really is, um, the medical definition is an inability to conceive after 12 months of normal unprotected intercourse. Um, there are many reasons for that. Uh, there can be male infertility and female infertility, and there can be what we call idiopathic. So that means we can't figure it out. We don't know, but there's a reason you're not getting pregnant. That's the, that's the uh, magnificence of the body. We think we're very smart, but we don't know it all. But the body knows. So um, for some reason, um, idiopathic, you know, we don't, we don't understand, but you're not getting pregnant. So, and there's so many steps to getting pregnant. If you, if you actually break it down um, and, and understand that, you know, first you need to ovulate and then, you know, obviously the egg and the sperm need to be okay. And then they have to actually meet up and get together. And that journey takes a few days. And um, then the, you know, there has to be fertilization and then, days later, there has to be implantation. And then after implantation, the embryo has to keep growing. So, you know, when you think about it, there are so many steps and they're very obvious in IVF because, you well, you know, we're a part of that journey. But um, in nature, it's like when you actually know what's involved, you think, wow, how does anybody ever become pregnant? <laughs> the odds must be so far against it. But again, the, the wonderful miracle that is our body knows how to do it. So, um yeah, that there are um, lots of lots of challenges. Yeah, and um, is that more common in females than in males? Or look, it, it used to be um, considered a female problem, and um, which I'm glad it is no longer considered that because it, it very often is male male issue as well. Um, the there are there are reasons. There are um, you know sometimes. There can be um, physical reasons. Um, there can be ovulation reasons. There can be social reasons, um, um, chemical reasons from people getting affected by things in um, in the environment, environmental issues that reduce sperm count. Or, um, but certainly, uh, stress is is shown to be one of the major ones. I mean, it, well, clearly the research shows that if uh, a population of infertile people can have their fertility improved by 55% by addressing mind-body therapy, then stress is, is what is at the core of that. So uh, inflammation, other things, yeah. So uh, the body isn't going to uh, get pregnant when it's in you know, stress leads us to be in fight-flight mode and fight-flight mode to the body means there's an imminent danger. So the things that are not necessary turn off and our immune system is one of those as well. So, you know, in times of stress when people, particularly at the moment, when people are worried about potential of getting sick and they're getting stressed about that, they're actually predisposing themselves more to get sick, predisposing themselves more to reducing fertility, um, predisposing themselves more to ageing. Stress affects every single system of the body. So um, that's why doing a daily practice such as meditation is shown to be so wonderfully beneficial to the body. 
Yeah, that was um, one of my questions now. Is that the method that you find um, more effective in managing stress, meditation? Yeah, look, it's not a, it's an, again, as with all things, it's not a one size fits all. I think that um, it, it, different things for different people. And personally, uh, and this is what I help people with in my practice. And personally, I wouldn't say to very many people, you know, off you go and sit for an hour every day and meditate because I know that most people are not going to do that. So I prefer to give them tools that they can that I know that they're more likely to use. And um, breath techniques are really wonderful. Um, even if I, I, I do a seven-minute um, guided body scan, even if they can sit for seven minutes, but if they can't do that, um, four breaths, you know, a cycle of 15 seconds of breath, four breaths, one minute. And really um, breath work is wonderful because, again, what I like to do, because I understand the body, because of my background, I guess, and I understand the nervous system and the way that it functions, when we can actually understand the body's natural responses, it makes it much easier for us to work with them and to hijack them, if you like, and, and utilise them for our benefit. So we know that, you know, when you get a fright, we know that the in-breath is what is it is impacted. You know, often we'll take that that big breath in when we get a fright. And that's actually connecting us to part of our nervous system, um, sympathetic nervous system, and that's connected to fight-flight mode. The opposite to that, though, is the out-breath. So the out-breath is that long, slow out-breath. And when we do that, when, you know, we take that sigh of relief, you know, we take that long, slow out-breath. So the body does this naturally when we're calm, when we're relaxed or when we're safe or when the danger's over. So if we hijack that and we can use that to get people to actually focus more on their out-breath, so, you know, extend the out-breath to be twice as long as the in-breath and take four breaths. So, um, you know, mindfulness, so breath work, mindfulness is something else that I use a lot of and I I um, encourage people to be in this moment here and now. And, and you can do that by simply just um, engaging the brain in something else to do, you know, looking around and, and seeing what they can see, seeing and feeling what they can feel, hearing what they can hear. So just being very present in the moment. Um, I also use a lot of um, techniques like to to bring people out of anxiety to get them to challenge negative and negative thoughts that aren't helpful. You know, to challenge them: is this even a real thought? Is this imagined? You know, are they worrying about something that may never happen and hasn't happened? And and when they recognise that hearing is the choice, then they get a choice to bring themselves back to keep following that and it's going to take them to the destination they don't want to go to or to choose to take a breath and come back to this moment and be here and now and just ground themselves in the present moment. So I think um, I think that, that all of those uh, techniques are very beneficial. But certainly meditation is, and if people can meditate, yes, fabulous. Um, it has so many wonderful benefits for the body. Yeah, they're powerful methods, right? Uh, I have a question about breathing methods. I hear that a lot and I practice myself and that's true. It's so, it's incredibly beneficial to the body. Should we breathe in through the nostrils and exhale through the mouth? Does it make a difference? <laughs> Do you know, I hear that a lot too. And I don't, you know, I, that's more of a yogic technique, which is fine. You know, that's based in a lot of history and a lot of, you know, thousands of years of of um, techniques. So I think there's probably merit to it. Um, personally, I think it doesn't, it, 
doesn't make a massive difference. I, I think it's really more important from a physiological point of view anyway to focus on that out-breath and to, and to really relax into that. So whether you're breathing in your nose, out your mouth or, again, it's about comfort. If it's not comfortable, I think the most important thing is do what's comfortable for you because if you're not comfortable, you're not going to relax. So, you know, if it's more comfortable for you to breathe in your nose and out your mouth, fine. If it's more comfortable for you to breathe in your, in your mouth, some people have issues with their nose, they can't do it. You know, they have deviated septums or something, you know. So if it's more comfortable for you to breathe in your mouth and out your mouth, if you're a mouth breather, then go with that. I think, I think the possible um, benefit or, no, or lack of benefit from either of those options is probably minimal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's great for clarification. Thank you, Danielle. Because I have been doing my own way. It has been working. So yeah, it's, why should I change? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What works. And and for me, I offer people a range of breathing techniques, Some uh, because not everybody likes the same ones. Um, there's a great one that's actually on YouTube, Dr. Andrew Wheel. He's a um, He's a GP. He he uses a yogic technique called four, seven, eight. So you're breathing into four, you're holding for seven and you're breathing out to eight. He does do the breathing through the nose, breathe out through the mouth, and he has the tongue at the at the um, back of the teeth when he's breathing out. So it's very um, technique orientated. The technique itself is very good. Um, but again, it doesn't, it's not good for everyone. So I usually offer people a variety and, and what, what's comfortable for you is no point in trying to do something that you're not comfortable with because you, number one, you're not going to stick at it. And number two, it's not going to be very effective for you. True. Yes. So true. So let me ask you a few more questions about the IVF, the process. What is the, uh, the most challenging part of the process I think uh, everything, can I say? <laughs> everything, wow. <laughs> everything. Um, waiting. I think time and waiting because there's so many steps. So someone uh, has already been, they're already fairly stressed when they get to us in IVF. Someone's been um, trying to conceive already, so they're already aware there's an issue here. They're already questioning, am I ever, is this ever going to happen for me? Am I ever going to get pregnant? And some people, this has been their life desire and that maternal instinct particularly um, is very strong when, when faced with perhaps this isn't going to happen for me. So um, they get to us and then there's more waiting because they have to see the doctor. Sometimes that takes a while to get in and then they have to see the nurse and and then, you know, they have to get all these bloods and all these tests done, even though they've probably had them done several times already. The clinics often like to do their own because they're more specific. So more, more time wasted. And time is certainly the enemy here because that was one of the things I really wanted to get across time. Uh, fertility decreases enormously with age, particularly um, once a woman is over uh, once a woman's over 37, we used to deem them to be advanced maternal age. So that doesn't sound too flash, does it, when you've been told that and you're just trying to start your family. So uh, but that's because that's the age where a lot of um, chromosomal abnormalities begin to become a little more um, uh, common. So, you know, there is possibilities of things going wrong there. But then... Um, once I actually do get onto the cycle, there's more waiting and more waiting. So they start and they have their injections and they have to wait for their scan to see what's on the scan. And then the scan may or may not show success. So they may be cancelled right there and then and have to start again. 
And then, you know, if they do get through the scan, then it's the wait to, you know, egg collection to see. And then and then it's the wait to see if they've got eggs. And then after that, it's the wait to see if they've got fertilisation. Then after that, it's the wait to see if those embryos continue to develop before they get them put back in, transferred in. And then after that, the long wait to the pregnancy test. And that's often, for most people, I think the hardest part. There's a probably a 10 to 14 day wait there. And that's that's an everyday checking, checking. You know, has is it worked? Has it not worked? And then, and then even past that point when they get their bloods taken on the day of the pregnancy test, we'll wait for that phone call. And um, if it's if it's good news, then they're they're waiting for the next week to see how things are going again. And then the wait for the scan. So. Um, In a situation where they've had so many disappointments, all of those things are a potential for another disappointment. So it is, it's challenging. And then if they do get a negative, they've got to start that whole process all over again. Are there any other alternatives to IVF? I think that there are, but it's interesting. It's like what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Because I think that, you know, meditation and mind-body work is certainly an alternative, but it's not something that people would begin to do because they don't recognise at that point that there is an issue. So it's not until they recognise that there's an issue that IVF then becomes an option, you know, so they've been trying to get pregnant. I think... um, Certainly, if people were to realise that mind-body therapy helps fertility in that first 12 months of trying and and actively um, started to use some of those therapies, I think that would be very beneficial to a lot of people and a lot of people would spontaneously conceive. But the thing is, um, people, people probably just expect that it will happen, you know. So it hasn't happened these few months. There's, a, there's um, naturally a... Um, a one in six chance every cycle that it's only a one in six chance every cycle that you're going to get pregnant if everything is done at the right time. If you happen to have, you know, got ovulation um, happening and um, eggs and sperm get together and all that sort of thing, um, it's only a one in six chance per cycle that um, that will end up in a pregnancy. So, again, when you when you kind of know the stats, you think. It's, it's, it's interesting that anyone does does get pregnant so easily, and some people do, of course, get pregnant very easily. And when you're in IVF, of course, it is a it's a bit of a skewed population naturally because you are dealing with an infertile population. But um, yeah, I think uh, there are things to do, but it just it, you know w- people don't do them because they don't realise it's a problem. I think is the, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. What are the success rates on IVF? Um, they're not as high as people think. Um, each clinic has their own success rate, and and it and it's you're not always comparing apples with apples. Sometimes um, they're, they're, um, how they express their success rates are different. So you can have um, success rates expressed per egg collection, which could entail maybe four or five cycles. Or you could have success rates um, expressed as per transfer, per embryo transfer, which are going to be very different. Because in a um, in a cycle, 
for example, you might get an embryo transferred and you might get three or four frozen embryos. And if they're taking the culminative um, pregnancy rate from all of those transfers, that's probably going to be higher. So when you um, are looking at success rates per clinic, you have to really look at how they are expressing those success rates. Um, Really per cycle, oh, gee, I would... At one stage, it was it was quite low in the early days. Um, it was would have been maybe twenty five percent, but thirty uh, percent perhaps. But I think things have improved so much now. There's um, there's longer cultures. I, I think you know fifty percent, maybe fifty five. And I think some of them might even be expressing higher percentages than that. But again, you've got to look at what they're actually telling you with that success rate. But people often make the mistake, and this was something I also wanted to portray in the book, people often make the mistake of thinking that, oh, well, if I don't get pregnant, IVF is the answer. Well, IVF isn't always the answer. Clearly, um, it's a, it is a risk to put off your fertility years. So that, that was a message I wanted to get across too, that um, waiting till everything was perfect until um, you've had the holiday, the house, the career, and, and putting the um, fertility off until then could be a risky thing to do because IVF is, is not, uh, it's not guaranteed, certainly not guaranteed. Yeah, that's, that's a great message and it's true. We usually wait for everything, wait to be happy, wait to be peaceful in bed. Yeah, yeah. Not right, because I mean, when is the time right? Really, <laughs> the time, the time—it's never the perfect time. So you may as well just this moment's the perfect time, really. But um, I, I understand there are challenges for people um, financially uh, and every other way. But IVF is a very expensive option too. Oh wow, that's another yeah challenge, right? Financial challenge, right? Yeah, right. yeah. So uh, we are at the end of the interview. I would like to ask you if you wanted to add anything or read a passage uh, from your book before I ask you my final questions. Oh, a passage from my book. Oh, goodness. Um, this is when I opened it, so I'll say it. And in the book, she, she experiences a lot. And um, I don't want to give, uh, maybe I don't want to give away too much. So. <laughs> yeah, not a good idea. <laughs> Um, okay, it's, it was the middle of January when finally we got to see my gynecologist for results. Instead of feeling rested and relaxed from nearly four weeks of holidays, I was actually feeling completely exhausted and stressed. I hadn't been sleeping well. I couldn't stop worrying. Thoughts of regret kept going through my head. Why did I wait so long? Why didn't I listen to mum? What if I'd started sooner? What if I never get pregnant? What if, what if, what if? This was the never-ending conversation in my head that kept telling me over and over that this was all my fault. That's a powerful one too. Um, yeah, it's a great book to inspire us to become more resilient and to have hope. Yeah, it's a great inspiration. And I, yeah, I do think hope is uh, hope is something that I think is almost essential because it's our vision of the future, isn't it? It's if there is no hope, I think, um, you know, I, re I recently on the weekend actually did a um, summit on suicide prevention and that was one of the key things uh, to try to elicit hope for these people. So I think, I think I, for personally, I think hope is, is um, imperative. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Danielle, for your work. And I love, absolutely love your purpose in this life. And you know that you're very aware of 
what are you doing here in this body at this time? You have known that for a long time to help others. Yeah, how beautiful. Thank you. I've got a big smile on my face. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and my final question is, what is another word for healing? Peace comes to mind for me. Peace. If you knew you would die soon, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? I would probably not make too many changes, but I would, um, I would surround myself more than I do now with the people I love. That would, be, that would be the most important thing, to spend that remaining time as much as possible with my family and the, pe- you know, the people I truly love. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> Lovely. And my last question, what are three things about life you know for sure as of today? Three things I know for sure. Mm. We have a choice in all things. We have the most amazing potential to create and design our, um, our lives And our focus of attention is um, what we strengthen. So, you know, what we focus on, we we strengthen. So that comes into the choice as well to be able, we all get to choose what to focus on and what what to just let fade into the background. Yes. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services and future projects? So my author web is www dot danielle d-a-n-i-e-l-l-e aitken a-i-t-k-e-n author dot com dot au i'm also on a uh, natural therapies pages um as well for my business so that's just you just google in danielle aitken counseling and hypotherapy and i'll pop up great Thank you so much again, Danielle, and we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Danielle Aiken, please visit her website, danielleakenauthor.com.au. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Bye.